Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Last week, we were trying to figure out who can get the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now they're lowering the age to 40. Federal budget is coming. Do you care? And we leave this world for some better news in space. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Dad survived the weekend after getting his AstraZeneca shot. He is looking a little funny, but that has nothing to do with the vaccine. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Where's the respect? Get no respect for that. I don't think he likes my uh, Monday afternoon uh, track outfit. My Monday afternoon uh, flannel, uh, Monday afternoon flannel ensemble. <laughs> and a little bit of plaid in there, too. I got the plaid slippers on. Looking like a real granddad here. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. Thank you. Uh, one for each slipper. Uh, it is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. There's lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, another jam-packed show. Lots to talk about uh, today, uh, including uh, now AstraZeneca. Uh, if you're 40-plus, you can get an AstraZeneca shot. You know, when I got mine before the weekend, it was 55-plus. Uh, so, uh, and again, as I, I told you on Friday when I was talking to the pharmacist, uh, he said um, people aren't, aren't, aren't booking appointments for it uh, because of the mixed messaging. Uh, that being said, uh, it will expire after a certain while. So uh, from what I understand, they're lowering uh, the age, trying to get more of this stuff uh, out the door uh, before it expires. And, uh, yeah, that's where we are. So good news there in the sense that uh, uh, now more people are eligible uh, for this. As I said, got mine on Friday, felt, felt fine, a little uh, soreness around the arm. But other than that, uh, easy peasy. So um, sign up if you can. It's very easy to do so now. It's not hard at all. Let's play you a report here uh, from Tina Trajani, Global News, in regard to uh, now the uh, lowering of age for AstraZeneca, opening up more eligibility. The news was confirmed last night by Health Minister Christine Elliott's office, which has been under pressure to expand eligibility for the vaccine. Until now, it's only been available to those aged 55 and older in Ontario. In a statement, a spokesperson indicated based on current supply, pharmacies and primary care settings would be offering the vaccines to the now larger group starting on Tuesday. There has been some hesitation for some to get an AstraZeneca shot because of a possible link to blood clots. But healthcare accessibility advocate Sabina Vora-Miller says that is being monitored. We're taking- Taking side effects very seriously. There is so much due diligence on safety that is occurring. And at this point, given the situation in Ontario, the benefits of the vaccine far outweigh the risk. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right. Uh, interesting note uh, uh, from a listener. I wonder now with AstraZeneca if those people who did get it or do get it will get their second shot quicker. Uh, that's a fascinating uh, angle, and we'll certainly uh, keep our, uh, keep an eye on that. Let's bring in Paul Johnson, director of the Emergency Center with the City of Hamilton. He is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
I am doing well, Scott, and uh, congratulations on getting your vaccine and being part of this movement to end this pandemic. I appreciate that. Well, again, you know, anything we can do, and as soon as I got into the uh, age group, uh, what the heck. Uh, I was, as as I uh, said on the air on Friday, Paul, I was surprised when I was at the pharmacy getting the shot, uh, the pharmacy saying that uh, initially uh, demand was great, and then as, you know, we started seeing some conflicting information, uh, a lot of the appointments were going unbooked. Uh, I'm sure that's one of the reasons we're lowering the age, plus, you know, obviously this only has a certain shelf life. What are your thoughts on... uh, the changing of the ages and, and the hesitancy around this vaccine. Well, we're, we're excited that uh, there's more opportunities for more people to get vaccines. The vaccines that are available uh, are good vaccines. Uh, just this morning at our board of health meeting, Dr. Richardson again reiterated that uh, the vaccine that you can get in, an, in as fast a way as you can get it is the vaccine that you should take. The risks associated are very, very small and, you know, Nothing is risk-free in life, but these are very, very small and has been confirmed. And obviously, they're doing lots of due diligence around all the vaccines, not just AstraZeneca, in terms of, uh, of their effectiveness, uh, any side effect issues that people should worry about. But we need to recognize that around the world, tens of millions of people have received the AstraZeneca vaccine, and it's going well. And we're excited that that offers more opportunities in Hamilton because a lot of our bookings for the other sites are full. And if people have been going online and trying to find bookings, Uh, We don't have bookings until into May, and this offers an opportunity for more people, younger people, uh, to get a vaccine uh, quicker. And, you know, all you have to do is look to the U.K. Uh, It was interesting. uh, My wife was saying, uh, watching uh, coverage of the funeral uh, for Prince Philip this weekend, she said, look at the people at Buckingham Palace. They're all running around uh, like jogging and out on the street and nobody's got masks on because they've literally opened up. And, you know, this vaccine was the uh, workhorse of, of getting the U.K. vaccinated. It really is. There is no other pathway to uh, reduction of restrictions, uh, to uh, to getting back to feeling more like uh, what what normal life is. And we're a ways away from that, regardless in, in Ontario. But you can see around the world uh, where people are ahead of us uh, because the disease moved through their countries faster than it did in Canada or different timings. Now you're seeing that... Um, uh, the result of that. And, and those are the things that we need to hang on to. And it's also a good reason why we continue to, we should continue to talk about, you know, what's holding people back from going and getting their vaccine when they're eligible and booking that appointment and, uh, and, and really having a, a deep conversation about uh, what can we do to provide the right information so that people can make uh, the, the right choice. I'm not for a minute suggesting this isn't a personal decision. It is. But I think we have to have uh, honest conversations with folks about what can we do to get you the right information so that you can make an informed choice and continue to encourage people to get the first available vaccine and to sign up for it for sure. Uh, obviously, now um, uh, the Ontario government in Alberta now administering this to those that are under 40. You can get those through uh, local pharmacies very much. You could when it was o- over 55 and such. Same sort of process there. Um, so we know how to do that. Talk about everything else within the hammer. If we're looking for a vaccine, how do we get one? What's the process now? Uh, so we continue to work uh, through the provincial categories in terms of eligibility uh, the provincial booking tool in terms of the online portal is, is there as people become eligible for vaccine. Uh, they, can, they can certainly go there. Going to hamilton.ca slash vaccine booking gives you a great breakdown of all the ways that you can access vaccine. 
And people say, well, how come it can't be simple? And I wish it was, but there are a variety of ways because there are some targeted approaches where we are working, uh, for instance, in, in specific neighborhoods. And those bookings are only available if you live. And it's only live, not just not work or anything else. Uh, it's if you live in those areas, you can book vaccines. And then we have certain populations that we're going to, the homebound seniors. We started uh, uh, we started a week ago to get into some of the homebound folks. Some of them are seniors. Some of them have, have uh, health issues that uh, would preclude them from ever really being able to get out of their house and go to a vaccination site, no matter where it was. So we're going there door to door with our paramedics. And then, of course, you have uh, just the age-based folks that can book online through the provincial tool. So there's a variety of ways to go. And I think people need to keep checking back in with that site, understanding where they fit into those categories, understanding where they live might uh, have an impact. And, you know, as of, as of today, for, for, for me, I become eligible for vaccines as of the decision now of the provincial government to open this up to uh, those over 40 years old. Whereas when uh, I ended the work week and, and over the weekend, I wasn't. Hmm. So, you know, these are the things that happen. They change and then you have to understand how to book and get on it. The information's there. Uh, or people can call our hotline at uh, at the city and we'll get that information to folks. But it's uh, really important people keep on top of it so that they know when. And things can change. And as I use myself as the example, Scott, you know, sometimes they change quite quickly. And I wasn't anticipating something on Friday. And all of a sudden I can go and book my vaccine as well because I am now eligible. So uh, 40 plus starting tomorrow with pharmacies through your local pharmacy. What is the age with these uh, uh, city center uh, and clinics and such that are uh, the other vaccines? It varies. So some of our work in priority uh, areas is 50 plus. Uh, we're working with our indigenous population. It's all adults. Uh, booking tool for mm-hmm. a general perspective is 60 plus. So there are, again, these variations, and again, and that's a, a bit about our hotspot approach that the province is taking, where we're looking at specific areas that have unique characteristics in getting the vaccine out. So I would say, uh, depending on, on where you are and, and, and where you live, uh, there are some, some constraints, but, uh, but now the sort of lowest number is this, is this uh, for the broad population, is this 40-year-old and up who can go to um, pharmacies through the pharmacy booking tool on the provincial site uh, or may have the availability through family physicians as this begins to roll out more and more over the coming weeks. And the rest, uh, there are some of these other pieces that people can book into as well. So again, it does vary. And I know people say that's awful confusing and it may be, but the good news is we've got a great chart online that keeps getting updated at at, uh, hamilton.ca slash vaccine booking. And uh, it's a quick look. You can see where you're eligible and uh, go from there. Uh, Vaccine supply still an issue. Obviously, uh, there's AstraZeneca around, uh, which is one of the reasons they're lowering the age for this, uh, but still an issue with the Pfizer and Moderna. Absolutely. Uh, It's getting steady supply, but not increasing at the rates, which would allow us to tackle what is now the largest phase that we're entering into. So, Dr. Richardson has you know, obviously announced uh, last week that we're moving into this phase two of vaccination. Uh, in Hamilton, there's about 300,000 people that will become eligible at some point through this phase. Uh, they become eligible in phase two, and how they're sequenced in phase two will depend on our vaccine availability and any prioritization that happens uh, within that. So 300,000 people, if you say, you know, hopefully 75% or so, it's still 230 some odd thousand people 
that that we expect will come forward. We don't, you know, unfortunately, not 100% of people come forward for the vaccine. But um, if we get that 75, 80%, we're still at 230, 250,000 people that we need to vaccinate. We do not have that supply, and we do not have that supply coming in very short order. So this is a process that will take us from now through to the end of June. And I know for certain groups, they've been saying, you know, we need to get in and say, yeah, you're prioritized, but it may not be until May, late in May into June, maybe the end of June, before we can work our way through that, unless there's a dramatic increase in the amount of vaccine that flows to communities. All right. Obviously, new restrictions uh, over the weekend into play. What can we do? What can't we do in Hamilton? <laughs> so the big things that uh, closed were a number of uh, outdoor recreational amenities, uh, including things like tennis courts, basketball courts, pickleball. Uh, golf courses were closed uh, by provincial order as well, so can't golf. And then the one change that happened, it was closed for a bit and then opened over the weekend, our playgrounds. Uh, so playgrounds are now open and they are available for use. But I really want to encourage the public, uh, wear masks when you're at the playground. Uh, I drove by a few yesterday uh, just to see how things were going now that they were back up and operating and saw a lot of, uh, of, of children and their parents uh, not wearing masks. And it wasn't just one family using it where you could say, well, it's just that one family. Uh, these were multiple families using the playgrounds and, and enjoying the playgrounds, but not wearing masks and not keeping physically separated. We really need you to pay attention to those public health uh, regulations. And uh, so, you know, some outdoor things that we're not allowed to do uh, anymore. Um, and really, this is all about staying at home, stay close to home. We must do some work over these coming weeks if we want to, to quickly get this curve to turn, if we want to release the pressure on our hospital systems uh, and uh, then allow the vaccines to do their work. And everybody says, well, we're vaccinating, so that'll just take care of it. Yeah. Unfortunately, it won't take care of it fast enough, Scott, because of the discussion we just had about the fact we don't have the supply uh, in the amounts that we need. So we need to do our work and stay at home, stay close to home, and very much think back to last March and April. Uh, that's what it is. Explore your neighborhood, stay at home, only go out if you absolutely have to. And for a few weeks of strong work, we'll get that curve turned and we'll help out our healthcare system. Uh, what did Dr. Richardson today say uh, about the case numbers and uh, the condition of uh, area hospitals and, and ICUs and such? Uh, it's a it's a bleak situation right now. Our cases continue to rise, and we expect uh, by the modeling that uh, that that her and, and Dr. Sider presented that uh, maybe the peak happens in early May. Uh, but we're talking a peak where we're going to see daily case numbers in the 170, 180, or even a little bit higher range uh, in Hamilton. And there was a time where, of course, we would have panicked at one day at that level, and we could be seeing that for multiple days uh, in a row. Uh, the strain on the healthcare system is real across the province. Of course, you, you see the numbers into the 700s, you know, getting into the mid-700s. And Hamilton feels that both locally with cases here, but it also feels that as we're part of a larger system that's transferring patients as, as the real issues in, in the Peel region in Toronto come to the fore. So it's a very challenging time in healthcare. care. Uh, it's a very challenging time for public health. They are struggling to keep up with the number of active cases that we have from a contact tracing perspective. We're just, we're just at a volume where it's hard to keep up with that work. And that's why we come back to I get it. People are tired. I get it. People don't want to hear that things have been closed down and they're just saying, well, I don't care anymore about it. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And my response to that is, you know, let's come together as a community. It's a it's weeks more work worth of work, not months and years. 
and we need to do this in order to protect ourselves. Absolutely correct. One last push, and we can see the end is in sight. That's for sure with the arrival of more and more uh, vaccine. Paul Johnson with us, Director of the Emergency Center with the City of Hamilton. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well, and good luck with all this moving forward. Thanks very much. You too. Bye-bye. Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, and with us now. Justin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and thanks for having me on today. So obviously good news for pharmacies now that the age has been lowered to 40-plus. Your thoughts? Well, it's welcome news and a step in the right direction. Anything that gets more people uh, with the vaccination and access to uh, community-based vaccinations uh, I think is uh, certainly something we should embrace. We need to also continue to evolve this program. We're still advocating for... Uh, essential workers um, in uh, and also out of pharmacy and into vulnerable neighborhoods. We think that essential workers, be it in essential businesses, healthcare, uh, teachers, should be able to access a pharmacy in any age category. But we're making some progress, which is always, uh, you know, giving us some hope. So why the lowering of these ages now, do you think? Well, I think all along there's been mixed messaging with respect to the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is contributing to some of our challenges around vaccine hesitancy and just getting the information out that this is a safe and effective vaccine. The product monograph has uh, suggested it's 18 plus. Health Canada has approved it at 18 plus. But of course, we did see some uh, challenges, uh, albeit very, very small and low probability of risk in Europe and a couple in Canada. And under an abundance of caution, the NACI, which makes recommendations, is a voluntary group of uh, experts, um, put it at 55 plus. But we know it is safe now. The data, we're going to let the data and science do the talking when we look at a risk well below 1%. And we know the benefits outweigh those risks. So the time is now. And I think the the arbitrary number of 40 isn't to suggest it's not safe for people under 40. What it is is really a supply and vaccine rollout strategy. We have bottlenecks of supply still. And with the demand, when you expand the age categories uh, that go into primary care and into pharmacies, we need to manage that. Uh, what about hesitancy around this uh, particular vaccine? Uh, you know, as I said, I was in the pharmacy on Friday. Uh, got my shot of AstraZeneca, uh, and, and appointments were opening up simply because it's, you know, as soon as some more messaging comes out, uh, hesitancy uh, creeps in and and people aren't booking these appointments. Your thoughts on that? It's been our challenge with the vaccine shopping that you referenced in the outset, um, people waiting for what they think and perceive is a better vaccine. And with some of the public health clinics uh, offering similar or the same age categories, access to Moderna and Pfizer, you're seeing some of those cancellations. And that's unfortunate because uh, I have a sad story of uh, a young person who uh, declined the AstraZeneca vaccine, later ended up in an ICU bed and tragically passed away. I mean, that, as sad as that is, that needs to be a lesson that get the vaccine that you're offered first. It is 100% effective in preventing death and serious illness. They're all effective, all three on the market. 
Um, but you know, waiting is is and could be very much tragic like that. So we we know that you know four out of a million is uh, is a very low risk, and we have other medications that are safe on the market like birth control, where there's actually a higher incidence of blood clots. You can get blood clots from getting COVID as well. So you know, your chance of getting COVID versus a, a blood clot um, should be enough to convince people of the safety. Uh, and effectiveness behind the vaccine. But you're right, there's been a lot of mixed messaging out there. So as a trusted healthcare professional, it's our uh, responsibility to educate, to provide people comfort and confidence uh, behind all three vaccines, and particularly AstraZeneca. Uh, we remember uh, a couple of weeks ago when we literally got conflicting information from NASI and, and Health Canada, and I don't want to get back into that issue, uh, but as you mentioned, Health Canada has approved this for anybody 18 plus. Uh, NACI all obviously has uh, concerns they're looking into. Why not lower the age sooner? Why not lower it even more now? I mean, because I guess in the UK well, it's been used for everybody 18 plus, no? Yeah, and that would be our recommendation. The only rate limiting factor in all of this is supply. We we know that there yeah. still are supply challenges in sourcing it. So if you open it up, does that create uh, other or introduce other risks and challenges in terms of the vaccine rollout? Uh, it's one of the reasons that we want a mix of vaccines, uh, all three into pharmacy, given our capabilities and uh, certainly infrastructure to manage uh, both Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca, because we don't want supply to be deterring people from getting the vaccine. We want to make sure we continue to uh, make it more accessible, take it to vulnerable communities and pop-up clinics uh, in partnership with physicians. And really, um, uh, this is our only way out of this, is the herd immunity through vaccinations. And we know we're going to need boosters, and we know that the variants are of concern. Uh, so we're not going to be necessarily out of this, per se, just from this round, I'll call it a round, or, or this um, you know seasonal aspect of it now uh, of getting the shots, but um, this is going to be a big contributor to getting back to normal. Do you think, uh, because there is some hesitancy around the AZ, the AstraZeneca, that those who have received it will get their second shots earlier? Well, there's lots of controversy about that as well uh, with respect to the product monograph, which suggests for AZ it's 12 weeks at its most uh, effective, which is different than the Pfizer, Moderna, mRNA vaccines, uh, which have a 21-28 day um, interval between first and second dose. So, you know, where we are at 16 weeks is the recommendation to try to get as many first doses uh, into arms as possible, which can save lives. So there was a, a strong rationale for that. But, uh, you know, I think uh, with the education and the work uh, that people are starting to see and, and obviously those that have done this successfully with the first dose are eager to get their second dose and there are exceptions so NASI has provided guidelines for those that are immunocompromised um, oncology patients transplant so uh, I think that's going to evolve as well but we want to make sure we stick to the product monograph that's where the science is um, in terms of the 12-week intervals. So um, uh, we've heard anecdotally that uh, obviously you sign up through your pharmacy and such. Uh, there's no walk-ins per se. However, uh, because some appointments have been missed or haven't filled up, uh, we've heard uh, stories of people actually calling the pharmacy that they signed up 
and moving ahead, jumping as as others uh, uh, have declined their their shot or such. Any recommendation there that if somebody is waiting for their shot, give their should they give their local pharmacy a call? Yeah, and I've certainly heard similar reports. And, and the the shared goal of all of us is to make sure we don't waste a single dose. So as a healthcare professional, they're looking at particularly when they puncture the vial, it's only good for 48 hours. There, you know, there's 10 doses in a vial. Some pharmacists are getting 11, an extra dose out of it, but uh, that's your window. So once you puncture it, if people are canceling appointments, then you, you have a challenge because when you store it in the fridge, it's good for the two days. So trying to make sure you get enough appointments, given all of the things we've talked about with vaccine hesitancy and their zero wastage is uh, a, a collective effort. The, the pharmacists have been uh, instructed uh, as part of the policy of government not to use a provincial central booking system that primary care and the public health units are using. What that means is that every pharmacy is using their own online booking system. All of them have phones, of course, but still the most efficient way is to go online. And the list of pharmacies is at the Ontario.ca slash pharmacy COVID vaccine web portal. You can see all of the pharmacies. There's 1,400 now across the province, and each one of them will link to an online booking system. Certainly failing that, if there's any hiccups with the online booking system, I would encourage people to call the pharmacy of their choice. Uh, have you heard any issues at all, especially with everybody concerned about clotting and this sort of thing, uh, that it has anything to do with blood type? Have you heard that? I have not. Um and I know that uh, based on all of the research that's been done and certainly the reviews uh, with respect to blood clots um, that, you know, I still feel very confident I'm going to get the shot myself. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think you see that uh, with other leaders. Um, but no, I have not heard specifically about uh, blood type. Do you think we will see these uh, ages lowered? Obviously now first in uh, Ontario, Alberta also doing this. Is it a matter of time before we see this across the, the, the country? Absolutely. You're going to see uh, everybody sort of lock in step, go down to 40. And then I think it will, won't be that much longer before we get to the 18 plus category. In fact, we've already started to make some exceptions uh, based on that guidance for the pop-up clinics. When we set up mobile um, clinics, we are looking at, even if it's the AstraZeneca vaccine, 18 plus for those essential workers and high risk populations. So it's happening in pockets. And I think the, the clear path forward if we're going to get all essential workers uh, vaccinated and uh, the broader population that is to open this up when supply uh, dictates. Um, where we are now, uh, obviously seeing um, uh, cases tick up, new cases tick up. Uh, we're seeing more access to the vaccine we do have, uh, obviously with the lowering of, of eligibility uh, and such. Do you see the end here, Justin? Do you see, as from where you're sitting and what we're supposed to have coming in by the summer, do you see the light at the end of the tunnel here? Well, it's so hard to make a prediction. I mean, if we were sitting here this time last year, no one would have predicted that we would be in a worse scenario 13 months later. Uh, which is where we're at when you look at the record number of cases, uh, over 4,000 now in Ontario, and the modeling being projected to be as high as 30,000 if we don't curb some of the um, both social distancing and safety measures that are put in place, uh, as well as getting uh, the vaccination in arms as quickly as possible. But yes, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. 
the, the, the key challenge, you've seen it with Moderna, where delay after delay, uh, it's not a predictable cycle mm-hmm. of supply coming in. Pfizer has been more certain with respect to the deliveries of the vaccine. Um, and I think that's where we need to open up for primary care and pharmacy in the community to have more access to those so that we can accelerate the vaccination uh, program. Uh, once we get the vaccine and herd immunity, then I think it's a matter of maintaining that through the booster shots. And we could see this something like the seasonal flu shot. You know, we've heard lots about yeah. the variants, and, and I think that will continue to manifest over the years. So I don't think this is a one and done, even when we get everyone vaccinated, but it will help. And then once we get into that seasonal aspect of this and getting the shot, like we do our annual flu shot, um, we'll be able to maintain a sense of new normal, whatever this is. But the supply what we're seeing in the supply chain is we're going to be awash with supply in June, June, July timeframe. And that's when we should be uh, in a position to get uh, the majority of the population uh, vaccinated. And what's the feedback been like from pharmacies that are participating in this? Has it been relatively smooth? Well, we had tremendous success in the first couple of phases. Um, we're just expanding uh, last, last week and into this week to get to 1,400 pharmacies um, Emotional would be a good way to describe it. I think the you know a lot of pharmacists. This is why they got into this profession to really be um, part of the public health effort, uh, preventing these types of things from happening and counseling their patients. Um, so you know the emotion of seeing the first vaccine arrive and being able to help people and and seeing their emotion of getting the vaccine has been a paradigm shift. Um, I think it has been successful. It's not without its bumps. Um, you know, we've seen that, uh, whether it's through the bookings and supply challenges. But, you know, that is expected given the complexity of the program and all the things that we're faced with. But, uh, you know, I, I think this has been uh, overall a success, and uh, we look forward to continuing to grow the program. So as of tomorrow, 40-plus, uh, your message to those 40-plus? Get the vaccine. It's so important. It is safe and effective. Um, Call ahead. Go online. Um, We will make sure that everybody gets a second dose. We're planning for that. uh, And the supply will come. Um, And also be patient. Uh, One of the things, and I have an upcoming podcast on uh, Pharmacist Matters around mental health, what we're seeing now where people are banging pots uh, a year ago in support of their health care providers, we're seeing a lot of anger and a lot of uh, that being directed at healthcare providers who are, you know, they're burnt out. They're they're tired. Uh, they're working around the clock. Uh, whether it's nurses, physicians, um, PSWs, pharmacists, you name it, all healthcare providers. Um, so we would ask that people support their healthcare providers, be compassionate, and be patient. Justin Bates with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, and great news, uh, pharmacies now adding uh, to their arsenal. Everybody uh, 40 and up can now get a AstraZeneca jab at your participating pharmacies starting tomorrow. Justin, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. McMaster, heavily involved in all of this, as uh, many major universities are, uh, particularly in regard to screening for a rare antibody that causes blood clots that have been 
obviously uh, the, added to the hesitation around the AstraZeneca uh, vaccines. Talk more about all of this. Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Nassi, uh, associate professor in the Department of Medicine with McMaster University and principal investigator with the McMaster Platelet Immunology Laboratory and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Thanks for having me on, and congratulations on getting your AstraZeneca. Excellent move. Thank you. Uh, it does feel good once you finally get it, that's for sure. Um, so in layman's terms, layperson terms, it's explained to us what you're working on at Mac. So we're doing two things. First of all, we're the diagnostic testing facility for the country to identify and confirm whether Patients who uh, end up uh, going back to see their doctor because they're suffering from uh, all kinds of uh, uh, symptoms that could relate to the vaccine, which could lead to this very, very rare clotting event. So the lab has been commissioned to screen for those by looking for antibodies that specifically cause uh, what's called a platelet activation, and platelet activation is the culprit in causing these clots. At the same time, we're also studying the disease and the disease mechanisms because once we understand how um, these antibodies can activate platelets leading to this uh, rare uh, side effect, we would be able to inform doctors much better as to how um, treatments might be uh, beneficial or or, uh, other uh, patient care uh, approaches. Is it just a matter of time, doctor, before you discover what's doing this? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting there. The, 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 the situation is very rare, so it's hard to get mm-hmm. enough information from these very rare events. But we, do, we, we, we are getting them, and it's going to help us to build this case as we move along. I mean, we are a, um, a, a research-based lab, and that will, also, that will help us try to identify the causes. It seems uh, odd that, you know, uh, some people will get this, get very ill with it. Other people will be exposed and it doesn't affect them. Uh, is that common for uh, this type of virus? Or, or is there any sort of clarity on on um, why some are more seem to be more susceptible to it than others? Or even or even for that matter, the reaction to vaccine? Yeah, so from a vaccine perspective, I mean, side effects are known. I mean, side yeah. effects are known for, vac- for vaccines, for drugs, for, for basically all, all pharmaceutical uh, items that we take. So this is not foreign to, you know, the, the medical community. Um, in this particular case, why very few people are getting it while, you know, the, the majority of the population is not getting this, we don't know. There has been no related risk factors just yet. It was it was at first it started off by being mid-aged uh, females, um, but you know we're seeing it in in other uh, we're seeing it in males. We're seeing it in a, a few uh, elderly uh, individuals also. So the risk factors are not known for our for our group. You know, clotting in itself we see it in in many settings, and one of the settings we we we've spend decades working on is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And there's a situation where patients receive heparin for just a surgical procedure, and the majority of patients will never, ever get anything. And there's a very, very small number of people that will develop clots in response to this uh, heparin uh, setting during surgery. And heparin, of course, is an anticoagulant that is used for uh, major uh, surgical procedures. So we've seen this, you know, restricted to some people, why it's happening in them. Uh, We still do not know. 
Um, uh, as you said, this is common in a lot of medication, a common in certainly in vaccines as well. Is this more, does this sort of condition, is it more prone to the older style vaccines like this as opposed to uh, the newer style of vaccines like what the Moderna and the Pfizer is? Yeah, that's an excellent that's an excellent uh, question because the new technology with mRNA uh, based vaccines it isn't showing just yet any mm-hmm. clotting and they've been used more often uh, right now in this mass uh, ca- vaccination campaign than the AstraZeneca has. So they appear to be safer when it comes to the clotting event. But I do want to emphasize this is a very rare event, yeah. so I don't want to make it sound like. Um, one of them is uh, more than the other. Uh, but the, the mRNA-based ones seem to be better. There are side effects with that one, too, but they haven't grabbed the attention that these ones are grabbing right now. Are we just to expect, once we hear more from the Johnson & Johnson, that it will have similar red flags to the AZ vaccine? Just because They're it is that same- older type. Right. They're based on the same technology. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., there were claims that there are there were about six out of 6 million vaccinations. So it's a, the Johnson Johnson still appears to be a one in a million. I don't know if those numbers have changed in the last little while, but it's been on hold in the U.S., so I don't, uh, I don't anticipate that changing much. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what the mechanism is there, if it's exactly like the AstraZeneca one. I do expect it to be very similar, and I do expect it to have this same very rare event, too. Uh, do you anticipate that this is something we'll have to do on an annual event? It'll be just like a flu shot uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, vaccination for some of the other older diseases, ma- uh, muscle or measles, what have you, uh, where once you get one, you're good for a, a long period of time. Another excellent question. Um, let's start off by saying I think Pfizer already had mentioned recently that there might mm-hmm. need that there we might need a third booster after a year um, so that's one indication that maybe we're going to need more than one as this virus is mutating we're seeing these vi- uh, the these uh, variants of concerns at some point we might reach a point where the effectiveness of the current vaccine isn't as strong as it was with the original uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus so maybe that's another indication that there might be you know, new, new, uh, new uh, uh, generation two, generation three vaccines that will be required further in the future. Uh, it's, it, I, I don't, I don't have the perfect answer for that, but there seems to be some sort of trend that we might be headed to. Um, I don't know if it's going to be annual or, or every other year. We're, we're going to have to wait and see. But there are, there are some indications that we might need a booster, at least for, for the Pfizer one. Do you think that the new uh, mRNA vaccines like the Pfizer and the Moderna will perform differently over time than the old technology? That, that's a great question, too. Uh, the, the effectiveness of all three and four vaccines, both technologies seem to be very effective at protecting us from A, hospitalization, B, death, uh, C, symptoms. So everything drops with any of the, uh, any of these uh, vaccines. So, so get the vaccine that is available ASAP because they all work and they're all really good at protecting us from uh, major uh, um, uh, events that can come down from getting the actual COVID uh, infection. 
We all know that the messaging around AstraZeneca has been less than perfect uh, on many fronts here. Uh, you know, at one time over 65, the other under 55, sorry, over 55, under 65, what have you. Uh, now uh, we're seeing uh, it now be lowered to 40 plus. In uh, Ontario and Alberta are taking advantage of that. Should we be lowering these ages if there's the concerns that you're studying? Fantastic question, and I, I am so happy that that, that uh, you know Public Health and Health Canada has recommended that we can drop and start using it. Listen, it's all about weighing benefits to risks, and the benefits of getting these uh, these um, vaccines into people's arms way outweigh the risks that are you're, you're facing with getting a clot from this vaccine. I mean, the numbers in Canada, we know what the uh, numerator is. We know how many cases of clotting there are. It, it's so fluid. It's so rare. One in 100,000, one in 200,000. When you compare the relative risk of getting a clot from getting COVID and that that you would get from the vaccine, <clears throat> it, is, it, it, is, it is a great decision to drop it and so we can get these vaccines into people's arms. Uh, I was reading something over the weekend, and again, there's so much information uh, out there that there was some research being done into blood type and how that affects whether someone may have a reaction to this or even the disease itself. Is there any clarity there at all? Not yet, because of course we're seeing well from the COVID from from the infection itself. There was some indication that certain blood groups are are are, are less are, are more protected than others. I don't think that there is a clear cut answer over there. And certainly from the from the uh, from the um, vaccine perspective and clotting, I mean the numbers are so low, it, it'd be very hard to determine that just right now. Um, but we are working towards uh, trying to understand if there are certain specific risk factors. But again. Millions of people have been vaccinated with AstraZeneca, which covers all kinds of blood blood groups. So, um, I'm I'm not sure how accurate those could be just right right now. And at one point uh, during the early part of this discussion, it seemed to affect women more than men. But uh, any more on that on the gender of of this? What it would affects one more than the other? So there has been a predominance of females over males, obviously from the data that came out of Europe. Uh, now, whether that was because of gender or, or, or circumstantial, because they started vaccinating mid-aged people, uh, uh, healthcare workers, which is predominantly mid-aged uh, females. So that's still not clear just yet, but we are certainly, you know, we've certainly seen it from the data out of Europe and the data out of uh, um, uh, whether it was Germany, UK, so on and so forth. There's certainly, uh, it's happening in, in males, it's happening in, uh, in older individuals too. So, uh, obviously, this has been the workhorse of the UK and and have, has gotten them out of lockdown and, and leading a, a relatively normal uh, life at this point. Should we be lowering this age more than forty plus? Should it be lowered to twenty, whatever? Again, it's, it comes back to weighing the uh, the risks versus the benefits, and I think dropping it to 40 right now and giving us a chance to get as many vaccines into our arms, I don't know if it was just dropped to 40 because that's how much vaccine we have available, or it's been dropped to 40 based on risk versus benefit. Uh, I, I'm not clear just yet why that happened, but I'm glad it happened. I'm glad we're, we're, we're starting at 40, uh, and maybe if it starts going really well, we drop it even more and just try to get as many vaccines in, in individuals so we can start looking like uh, the countries that have 
performed very well when it comes to vaccination and are starting to open up. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the point we're going to reach. We, we have a duty. We need to get vaccinated. And that's the only way we're going to get out of this pandemic. We certainly remember way back in the first wave that uh, this was just uh, uh, just devastating uh, long term care, old folks homes, that sort of thing. And uh, lots of cases just going through the roof in those early days and and the death count quite high as well. Uh, obviously, as we we uh, elected to to vaccinate long term care and such, a lot of those with two vaccines uh, already, we've seen a massive decline in uh, the illnesses of those that are in that age group and those in those senior age groups. Now, obviously, we're seeing more younger people um, with the variants and such. Are the young people now getting as sick as the old people as the older people were? Yeah, excellent question. I mean, the best data that you 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 can identify from that is that there's the death rate is much lower now. Mm-hmm. The ICUs are full and they're there for a very long time. So we have protected the elderly from death, and it shows that the vaccine actually works really well. So that is one really good uh, situation that we're seeing from that. So we're at a stage right now where we are still seeing now younger people, they are hospitalized, but the death rate is still low. Um, but that in itself is, is, is an issue because, I mean, it's dominated our ICUs. These, these patients now are, um, uh, you know, fortunately living, but they're, they're living and, uh, but they're very ill and they are in uh, the hospital. So that, that's causing a, a major pr- uh, stress on our healthcare system. Um, but the, the, the data, the best data is that these vaccines that went into, uh, old, uh, the, the older folks, uh, have worked and they have protected them from, uh, death. So that is very encouraging. Are you, uh, we remember at the beginning of this that, uh, many people, uh, uh younger generations weren't necessarily following protocol because they thought it was sort of a, a senior's disease. It was wiping them out where it seemed the younger populations, uh, were going unscathed. Now, obviously, as the older folks are immunized, uh, or vaccinated rather, we're seeing, uh, more, uh, spikes in the younger, uh, population. How concerned are you about that? And, and that we could see a situation with younger people as we did with older people in the first wave. I believe we are seeing it right now. I, th- I think that a lot of uh, hospitalizations are amongst the uh, uh, younger individuals. I don't know. When I say a lot, I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are, but we are seeing it. We know it's spreading amongst the younger individuals, uh, whether they end up in uh, hospitalized, needing ICU uh, care, or just getting sick and transmitting the virus. I mean, the message has to be out there that everybody is at risk to a certain uh, level, whether, you know, depending on the health uh, care that they require, but it is spreading. People need to know that. People need to make sure they abide by public health measures and to get the vaccines going. I mean, once once we get all those items in check, we will be able to control this pandemic. All right, last question, doctor. Um, any message for those, especially as we drop this age in pharmacies now, starting tomorrow to those 40-plus with AstraZeneca, to those that may have some hesitancy, what's your message? My message is go get the vaccine. Your chances of getting clots are so low. We have set up a national uh, diagnostic uh, system. Doctors know about this. They can quickly identify it. Send us the samples. We can quickly diagnose it, and it is treatable. Uh, however, the actual—it's a concern. 
Of course, it's always going to be a concern because clots are concerning, but it's very rare. The chances of actually running into a clot from the vaccine are way, way, way lower than getting a, getting COVID, getting a clot from COVID, and eventually uh, getting very ill or even causing death. Dr. Isaac Nazi with us, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine with McMaster University and Principal Investigator with McMaster's Platelet Immunology Laboratory, working on uh, screening for the rare antibody that causes uh, clots after AstraZeneca. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. And I just want to put a quick shout out to the to my group, to the leaders of this uh, group, Dr. Kelton, Dr. Arnold, for allowing us to be able to do all of this work. Thanks a lot. Keep up the great work. Here is today's daily commentary. With rising new COVID-19 cases and not enough vaccine supply to beat the variants, it is easy to see why Canadians are at the end of their rope. However, as the country locks down yet again while waiting for Justin Trudeau's portfolio to arrive, Canadians are growing more and more angry with their provincial leaders. But with the only real solution being more vaccine, I'm not sure what we want the provinces to do. Some want heavier lockdowns. Others say it's way too much. Some say we should have never reopened. Others say the restrictions have gone on for far too long. One thing I think we can all agree on, why are we staying at home while others are flying around the world and bringing with them new variants that are crippling our health care system? None of these problems would exist if Justin Trudeau was delivering his giant portfolio. Everything else is just a reaction to the shortage of vaccine. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The other news uh, happening today that is not vaccination related is there is a federal budget coming down uh, a little later on today, about four o'clock. We'll have more on this uh, for you tomorrow, obviously. Uh, but first one in a while. Uh, you might remember the uh, prime minister saying uh, during a pandemic can't do this. Although I uh, did have a throne speech a while back and was hoping uh, for a, an election somewhere between the first wave and the second wave, although uh, certainly thought better of uh, that. So we do have a budget coming down. Uh, many are, are just frightened by the, the cost of all of this. Uh, let's bring in Franco uh, Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, and thank you so much for having me on today. So what are your thoughts? I mean, obviously, this is, you know, a crystal ball thing. Uh, a lot of people still in lockup uh, browsing over this. But, but what have you heard? What's, what, what are your thoughts going into this before it actually happens? Well, I think it's safe to say that this budget is going to be covered top to bottom in red ink, right? I think we're predicting over the past year uh, for 2020, the deficit to be well north of $300 billion. Uh, We're going to see another big deficit in 2021. But what we're looking for is the path forward, right? We want to see a path back to fiscal sanity and some type of plan to stop dragging taxpayers deeper and deeper into debt. Right now, we're already facing a $1 trillion debt tab. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has promised not to raise taxes. So that means we need to see this budget um, prioritize getting spending under control where it can. Uh, obviously, uh, this is costing everybody a, a tremendous amount. I, you know, I, I can't rem- I, I can't m- imagine whoever the next party is that's elected having to deal with all of this stuff uh, in the future. 
that being said, uh, climate change has been uh, uh, the primary plank of the liberals' uh, election campaigns of late. Uh, we certainly heard uh, them using the Biden line, building back better. Uh, will we see more of this type of, of uh, a vision, or, or uh, are there different priorities here? Is it time to be doing this? Well, I would say it is, it's definitely not time to be doing this, right? So we have to remember that even before COVID-19, uh, we, we did not have extra money to be throwing around on, on pet projects for this government. Uh, remember, when, when, when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, back in 2015, he promised to eventually balance the budget, well, he missed that target by a country mile. So we had massive deficit spending before COVID-19, so we couldn't afford these new costly programs then. Now, fast forward to to what we're dealing with now during COVID-19 with an already $1 trillion debt. So we certainly can't afford these new costly programs now and going forward. Uh, we've certainly seen the U.S. and and uh, and they uh, uh, obviously coming up with infrastructure programs uh, and such, uh, uh, building roads and bridges and, and transportation corridors, transit, what have you. Are we going to see the same thing uh, from this government, or is there sort of like a, we don't build roads anymore mentality here? <laughs> well, I, I think that is a part of the top question that's on everyone's mind right now, right? How is this budget, how is this government going to try to encourage economic recovery? I think that's a key question. Um, now, when it comes to infrastructure, in terms of benefiting the economy, well, it has to be a key priority and it has to be, well, sorry, I should say, when we're talking about infrastructure spending, um, it has to be on something that actually gets the economy going, something that we actually need, not some of this uh, new type of pie-in-the-sky spending that would be wasteful. Remember, a one trillion dollar debt tab already. We don't have money um, to be spending willy-nilly here. Now, the one thing I will say is, is with the billions and billions of dollars that has already been spent during these COVID-19 measures, some say up to $270 billion in 2020, we have to remember that we don't need any more so-called economic stimulus spending. What we need to see is a different approach and really a taxpayer-friendly type of recovery. Uh, those in Ontario certainly remember uh, skyrocketing electricity rates, uh, trying to finance renewables, wind turbines and such. Is this the sort of thing we're going to see, do you think, from this government? Well, I think it's something that we should all be worried about. Um, I mean, just look at the carbon taxes that is, 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 already, is already hitting us. I remember back, um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he did say that he wasn't going to be raising taxes. He did say that now is not the time to be adding extra costs. And then only a few months later, he unveils this massively increasing carbon tax that is going to come up all the way up to $170 per ton. Well, on April 1st, as a bad April Fool's Day joke for taxpayers, um, he, he raised the carbon tax to $40 a ton. So certainly this is going to be increasing the cost of living. And I think especially now during this COVID-19 downturn um, is the worst possible time for, for government to be adding costs on struggling families, on workers and on Canadian businesses. So what do you think we're going to see the Fed spend our money on later today? What, what are they going to get for this? What are they buying? 
Well, you know, I unfortunately we we've already been hearing um, talks about up to a hundred billion dollars in, in stimulus spending, and and let me just go back to that for a quick second because again, we've already had billions and billions of dollars from the federal government spending. So especially after that, we don't need any more so-called economic stimulus spending. I mean, we don't need politicians in Ottawa who 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 couldn't even balance the budget of a lemonade stand to be pretending to be investment bankers with our tax dollars. Instead, let's take a taxpayer-friendly approach, right? Let's talk about the interprovincial trade barriers within Canada. Let's talk about reducing the onerous regulations on our resource development in Canada. And finally, um, one way to help Canada recover would be to allow families and businesses keep a little bit of our money in our own pockets. Let families have more money to spend at local shops, um, encourage more entrepreneurs to get onto the market, and allow businesses to keep more money in their businesses and help their employees get back to work when it's the right time. Do you think we're going to see national daycare, pharmacare, that sort of thing? Oh, I think that is the big question mark, isn't it? And, and you know, of course, childcare is important. But when you talk about childcare, um, a key here has to be choice and flexibility. We don't need a one-size-fits-all government daycare program from coast to coast. We have to recognize um, that the issues facing parents in St. John's are different from the issues facing parents in Hamilton, which are different than the issues facing parents in Peace River, Alberta. And again, we have to remember that there is no free lunch here. All of this will have to be paid for. And with a $1 trillion debt tab that we're facing, the reality is that any new type of costly government program, such as a national child care program, will end up going on to the backs of future generations. Uh, we're hearing a lot, uh, especially in this province, uh, to for the provincial government to uh, to offer more money in the form of uh, paid sick days. So if people are sick with COVID or, or feel symptoms, they can take the time off, get tested, recover, whatever it is that they need. The federal government has already said that, you know, this is our program, this is what we've done. Uh, many here in Ontario want to see the provinces add to that. Any thoughts? Well, I think the thought that I would have when when we're talking about all these types of COVID-19 spending is we need a guarantee that whatever the temporary spending may be, it has to remain temporary. And of course, we can kind of arm wrestle over what the level is. But I think the key thing here is that the temporary spending measures must remain temporary. And we need that type of commitment um, from all levels of government, but especially the federal government. When we're talking about a deficit for 2020, north of $300 billion, there is no way that we can see these uh, temporary spending measures become permanent. It's just way too costly and there is no money for it is this the time when society shifts is you know after this or or world disaster war that sort of thing we've often seen a new template moving forward are we going to see a societal shift here do you think franco well, that's a good question. And, you know, I, I have seen polls asking people on, on what they think about all this new spending, what they think about these big deficits. And at least in my conversations with, with friends, with family, or just, um, or, or just really anyone in general, what I am hearing is that when it comes to deficits, the, the thing that people are, are worried about is, is how we're going to pay for all of this, right? Because if the government doesn't control spending, if the government continues to spend, 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 well, then it's going to be very costly when it comes time to pay the piper. Um, and I know in my neck of the woods, where I am in, in, in Calgary, Alberta, is that there is, there's no way that families and businesses can afford higher taxes to pay for additional spending.
Franco Terrazano with us, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, eyeing up the budget, which comes down uh, later on this afternoon at about 4 o'clock. Franco, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Always fun to head up into space because there's always something exciting going on up there. Uh, let's bring in Paul Delaney, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics, York University, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Am indeed, Scott. Yes, indeed. So uh, the, the Ingenuity helicopter, it's, it's more like a little, uh, it's more like a drone to me, uh, anything. But how historic is this, this first flight from this thing on Mars? Oh, I think it's a red letter day, a blue letter day. Pick your color. Absolutely fantastic to be able to think that we have sent a drone helicopter. It's nomenclature. We've sent a flying craft to another planet where the flying conditions are challenging at best, 1% atmospheric pressure compared to Earth. And this little guy, Ingenuity, flew this morning right on target and did exactly what we wanted to do for 40 seconds and came down and is ready to rock and roll again next week. Big, so dis- big event. So describe this thing, how big it is. What, what does it look like? Oh, it's really small. It it's, uh, stands about 50 centimetres tall, so that's you know less than two feet in the old units. We're talking about two kilograms, uh, less than four pounds, and you know it's got to be robust enough to survive minus 100, minus 100 degrees Celsius temperatures overnight, power up its batteries during the day to get uh, rotors moving at 2,400 RPM and to be able to control its flight in a slightly windy environment. Remember, you know, it, there's not much air on Mars and there is a little bit of wind, but you're only two kilograms, so it doesn't take much to move you around. So it's a small package. As you say, it more resembles a drone, but they keep calling it a helicopter because of the two very large rotors that are on top, all powered by a solar panel. So it's and controlled. No, not by us, really. It's just software. The flight control is all done on board autonomously while we sit back here, sort of like 60, 70 million kilometers away, watching the show. So its direction, its flight plans, it's whatever already been established and, and plugged in and programmed. So it's not, we're, we're not like somebody's not sitting here with a remote control uh, here on Earth using this. Uh, it, it's, it knows what to do on its own. That's right. No joystick involved here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. This is all software. Uh, and so basically at around about 1230 local time on Mars, the vehicle assessed the atmospheric conditions and said, yep, we're good to go and spun its blades up as it said, to about 2400 RPM, did the 39 second, nearly 40 seconds of flight, which basically was 30 seconds of hovering and 10 seconds of up and down just to prove that it had full control of what it needed to do and it could do it. So very much an engineering demonstration, uh, and it nailed it. It could not have done it any better is what we are seeing from the imagery shown to us by Perseverance, as well as the imagery being transmitted back from Ingenuity itself. You talked about solar panels providing the energy for this. Any idea how long this thing will last up there? Well, the, the mission lifetime for Ingenuity was only designed to be 30 days. Uh, So we're about 15 days into that. Uh, Like most of NASA's estimates, it's probably very conservative. Uh, The the, uh, helicopter probably could last longer than that, but it has to use the Perseverance rover as its relay mechanism. It cannot communicate directly with Mars orbit, let alone Earth. So 
Perseverance is sort of station keeping, and they, you know, you've got a, you know, a, a billion dollar rover there that is sort of just watching ingenuity at the moment and can only do a limited amount of its own work. So the plan was 30 days, do the demonstration, push yourself to the limits of what ingenuity can do. And then sadly, as it sounds, perseverance will drive off and ingenuity will be left by itself and it'll go out of communication range in Yezero Crater. So uh, only up for about 40 seconds this time, up and down, and, and as you said, just basically trying to figure out how to maneuver and such. What what other experiments, what other role will this serve as, as this moves forward and, and it continues with life? Well, it is purely engineering, so there are no science instruments on board Ingenuity. It, it's just too light a payload for us to mm-hmm. be able to put anything on except cameras, computers, and heaters. Uh, but over the coming three or four flights, if all goes well, instead of going up to three metres, it's going to go up to of order 10 metres. Instead of being airborne for 40 seconds, they want, I believe, to be up to two minutes. They want to be able to fly around in a controlled fashion and come back. Do all the sorts of things that you need to be able to do when you are actually carrying a science payload. So ingenuity is is really only going to be able to show us, yeah, we can do everything we need to do. And of course, test the batteries, thermal uh, abilities, you know, it gets cold at night, minus 100 degrees Celsius, as I've indicated. And so you've got to be able to have enough capability to, uh, you know, protect yourself overnight and still be able to do your job the next day. So ingenuity will be pushed further and further closer to its endurance limits, just so that we'll know what we can do with its, you know, cousins down the line. As this is developed, what will its cousins down the line eventually be doing? What's the hope? Where will this go? Well, uh, I think, you know, two things. One, if you can get yourself airborne, you become a reconnaissance for any uh, rover. Mm-hmm. We know, for example, that some of our rovers have run into difficulty. They've driven literally into sand traps and have been mm-hmm. lucky on occasions to get themselves out. In fact, Spirit did not. It got stuck and have finally perished in a sand trap. So if you've got airborne reconnaissance, you can look over the horizon before the rover actually goes over the horizon. And that means you can now increase your efficiency in going to interesting targets. Perhaps more exciting, though, is the fact that these drones, these helicopters, will be able to go to places that the rover cannot, on top of rock outcroppings, perhaps going down into craters where the rover's, you know, the the incline's just too steep. So the helicopters will be able to go where no rover has gone before, and that means we'll be able to do more science in places that we weren't able to get to with rovers. So the, the, the future is really, really bright. Just from the science perspective, the fact that we can do this Once we get human beings onto the surface of Mars, again, you have increased capabilities to scout out your arenas, your areas around your settlements, perhaps even take you and I out for a spin one of these years. Uh, Will we be uh, will we ever be able to 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 control these with a joystick, as you said, from home? Or is it just way too far away to to even think about that? These these devices all have to be pre-programmed before they go up. They, they have to be pre-programmed. Of course, you know, you can program them on the fly, but mm-hmm. real-term joystick control, 
can't happen. Unfortunately, there's that pesky little thing called the speed of light. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Earth and Mars are always at best, you know, 50, 60 million kilometers apart. So that's, you know, two or three minutes of light travel time at best. More often than not, we're 100 to 200 million kilometers apart. Now you're talking tens of minutes. So, you know, you, you cannot control things in real time. That's why the entry, descent and landing of all these vehicles is completely autonomous. There is no time for a spacecraft to say, I've got a question, because by the time that question yeah. gets to Earth, I'm sorry, the answer is well and truly been delivered to the spacecraft, whether you like it or not. So light travel time is the problem. Hence, no uh, ability for us to joystick control from Earth. So what has NASA learned from this? Well, the biggest thing, and you can see that written across every engineer's face, we can do it. I mean, yeah. you know, six to seven years ago when somebody said at, at a JPL meeting, you know, I think we should try building a helicopter that flies on Mars. Yeah, there were a few guffaws around the room because, you know, 1% atmospheric pressure there. Most people had assumed that that was not going to be possible. But the JPL engineers more or less didn't take no for an answer. And here we are seven years later proving that with a lot of ingenuity, pardon the pun, we can actually do whatever we set out uh, to, to do. So as an engineering testbed, this was excellent. And it's very much like what happened in 1997, the Pathfinder Sojourner mission, the first time we went to the surface of Mars, A, with airbag deployment landing, and B, a microwave oven on wheels, our first rover, that was an engineering test. And look what we do today. We send one ton rovers to the surface of Mars, all based upon that microwave oven sized object in 1997. Ingenuity is very much the same. We have now proven that we can do it. Now the challenge is to make this a useful scientific tool in the future by building a much larger version of Ingenuity and deploying it for our exploration purposes. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times the atmospheric pressure on Mars. Why does that? What sort of challenge does that make for this uh, for this uh, craft? Well, a helicopter, of course, rises by its ability to you know, use the air around it. You know, the blades. You know, if you've ever mm -hmm. stood near a, a helicopter, once those blades start moving, you can feel this huge rush of air around you. So basically, it's pushing down, if you will, on the air that is in the atmosphere that gives it lift. It, it's a little more complicated than that, but you know, as a first approximation. Yep more air that you can push down, the greater the lifting capability of your helicopter. Well, when you've only got 1% the amount of air, so imagine about three to four times the altitude of Mount Everest, that's the amount of air that you've got to work with, your thrust, your lifting capability is significantly compromised. And so that was the first thing that the engineers of Ingenuity had to overcome. You, know, you just didn't have the raw material, the air to mm. work with. But they overcame that with the design that they did and the speed with which they were able to move the rotors, and they were able to do it in a balanced and controlled fashion. So as I say, you know, it was a great piece of engineering, and it paves the way for the future. What if you brought this thing back and flew it here in our environment? Would it work the same? Would it, what would happen to the performance of it? Well, actually, it, well, first approximation, yes, it would work, but you wouldn't need to spin your rotors at right. 2,400 RPM. Uh, right. Don't know what the answer is as far as the speed was concerned. But, yeah, you'd be able to fly it here, but the performance would be much, much, um, you know, the demands on the vehicle would be much right. less. You wouldn't have to spin your blades 2,400 RPM to get the necessary lift. It would be probably to a first approximation only you know, 3,400 RPM to get yourself airborne here on Earth. So, yeah, it 
did work here. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they tested it here in full atmosphere. And then they put it into their Mars simulation chambers and they started pumping the air out. That's the way they would have learned how the control surfaces, the air control surfaces were working on their design. They basically started with Earth atmospheric pressure and kept reducing it until they got to Mars atmospheric pressure. You, how would this affect air travel in the future in, in any way? I mean, this is valuable information, no? Oh, it's very valuable information. It's probably not going to affect air travel here on Earth, however, because, you know, we've been we've had helicopters here for, well, yeah. know, what, 50 years. So there's no more. groundbreaking. There's nothing groundbreaking to learn from this that could translate into our aviation industry. Probably not, although, of course, you're you're flying ingenuity in a very harsh environment, and you can imagine the harshness being applicable here on Earth, flying these types of drones over Death Valley, flying them through the Antarctic and so on. Extreme environments here on Earth pose great challenges to our own engineering. And so I would care to bet that some of the lessons we're learning about the survival of ingenuity on Mars could, in fact, inform us with respect to flying similar drones in very harsh environments here on Earth. Fly them into volcanic caldera, fly it, as I say, Mm. over harsh desert uh, environments, and to be able to do it with reliability. The equipment that Ingenuity has is a mix of literally cell phone-type technology, just in a very harsh environment, as well as some new, uh, I'll use a technical term, gizmos. I mean, you know, it's it's Mm. not just all brand-new technology that is in Ingenuity, but a lot of that technology has never been put in the type of radiation environment, the really uh, extreme swings in temperature, low pressure, as I've indicated, and so on. So there are lessons I am sure that the engineers are taking away from this. How that will play out here on Earth, I actually really don't know, but I care to bet that it will be in the harsh environments on Earth rather than flying around Toronto. (laughs) Paul Delaney with us, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics at York University. NASA's Ingenuity helicopter, or drone, basically, uh, makes its first historic flight on Mars. Paul, thanks for the time, as always. Be well. Indeed. Take care, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.